Hello, and welcome to the Alchemy of Art podcast with your host, Addie Hirschton. Join us as we share folk tales and true stories about artists and the creative process. The quote of the day. Art is like a bright star up ahead in the darkness of the world. It can lead people through the darkness. Art is a guide for every person who is looking for something. That was said by Thornton Dial. Hello, everyone. My name is Addie Hurston. I'm a contemporary impressionist painter, teacher with the Indianapolis Art Center, author, and public speaker. The purpose of this podcast is to share stories about art and artists to inspire you and help you move forward. Today's podcast features an interview with speaker Richard Brendan and an Indiana ghost story, The Ghost Nun. Now, without further ado, here is my interview with Richard Brendan. Richard Brendan started his speaking career in high school on speech teams and in theater. He has a Master of Counseling, is a certified life purpose coach, and an ordained interfaith minister. He hosts the radio show and podcast, Richard Brendan, Bringing Love to Life. The show has been broadcast for 13 years and can be heard noon every Sunday on 88.7 WICR here in Indianapolis. You can also listen in on Blog Talk Radio and from Richard's website. On the show, Richard has interviewed Coleman Barks, Deepak Chopra, Byron Katie, Sark, Dr. Patch Adams, Maya Angelou, and many, many more. In addition to producing and hosting the Richard Brendan Bringing Love to Life show, Richard works as a public speaker and life coach. You can find out more about his work at richardbrendan.com. That's R-I-C-H-A-R-D-B-R-E-N-D-A-N. I met Richard a few weeks ago when he gave a speech at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Indianapolis on the art of living in light of death. In his program, he urged us to live our lives fully, even in the face of death, and expertly wove personal stories into his uplifting message. Welcome, Richard. Addie, it's so good to be with you today. Thank you. Okay. First question. What is the story of how you became a speaker? I think it happened when I was, first of all, in junior high. Um, I never really sang, never really spoke in public before, but I grew up being a lover of film, TV, things like that. There was always a little bit of a ham in me. And so the music teacher said, you ought to audition for a musical that we're going to do. Oh, and by the way, um, we're taking scripts if anyone wants to write something. So I actually wrote in eighth grade a script for a, a musical, a short short skit for this uh, play that our uh, Tecumseh Junior High School was going to do in Lafayette, Indiana. And they chose it. 
And so I performed for the first time in eighth grade. And so since that, I started really getting involved in the arts. And then in high school, I was on the speech team and did uh, humorous and dramatic interpretation and loved that. So that's really what launched everything. Great. What's your number one reason for speaking today? Well, the only reason that really causes me to want to get my voice out there more is to inspire people. I feel like that's my calling, is to inspire people, to remind them who they are, their own magnificence, their own beauty. Also, uh, to help people walk their talk, kind of a call to action, uh, to help create a better world in which we can live in. But when I used to give keynotes before, and I'm getting back into that business now, the one thing that was always shared in every keynote I ever gave all over the Midwest was someone invariably, if not more, would come up and say, you inspired me today, or thank you for inspiring me. Uh, to inspire means to breathe life into. And so that's why I do it. I, I love the feeling of being used by the universe, I guess, in inspiring hearts and minds, um, in enabling people to be the best at whatever they want to be. Good. So you're an enabler. <laughs> <laughs> what is the method for preparing your speeches? How do you get organized to present well, when I have an idea or topic in mind, um, I'm a little unorthodox. I have to feel the message. So I think about stories. As a matter of fact, when I, when I hear a story or I see a story online, I'll create a file. So I have a lot of files. But when I think about, oh, my topic is this coming up next week, I'll start getting a feel for it. And it's, I have to feel passionate about it. And so I always start with a set opening, and I always have a set close, and then the rest, I just am like guided, I guess I would say by spirit or by intuition, and also by the energy of the audience. I can read that pretty well. And so that's a process I've always used all these years. Um, that's why I've never taken a professional speech course. Um, the high school I went to, uh, Lafayette Jeff at the time, our debate team won the nationals in the country that year. Um, I came in first every tournament I was in for humorous and dramatic, not tooting my own horn, I'm tooting the program that we had there, both musical and also speech and debate. And so I was pretty fortunate in that way. And then when I went to Purdue, initially on a theater scholarship, I tested out of all the speech courses there. I think it was just a natural gift that I had, but if I were to take a Toastmasters course, I'd probably flunk out because I just can't do things the way people necessarily teach it. I have to feel it. And if I feel it and own the message, that's what I call it, then I just uncork and I speak from my passion. Okay. So that's the process. Okay. And when you're in front of an audience, do you have notes, like bullets, and then you know you're going to go from this story to this story to this story? Or do you not even have that? If I have a couple of stories, maybe stories I just found, I'll have them up there with me so I can share those. But typically, when I do keynotes, so most keynote speakers, for example, workshop leaders, will have about three or four messages. So they pretty much know those messages. So I'll do bullet points. 
And that way I have an outline so I don't stray too far off because I like to improvise. And again, I like to read the energy of the audience. And so that's why I've always said, always have something written out, even if it's just a quote or a short paragraph in the beginning. Know where you're going to go in the ending. And in the middle, it is some bullet points, but it'll give me some leeway in knowing how to weave the words together or the story together. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Nice. I think that particularly helps in my own experience if I don't have everything written. If it's not all scripted, then I, it doesn't become stilted and I can speak to the audience just as I'm speaking to you now from my own mind and it's and right now (laughs) would you agree yeah Yeah, early on also when i went to seminary for example and i was quote a student minister in disciples of christ and they forced us to write everything out and so you felt like you were reading it and i was and i was so then focused on content i was kind of devoid of passion And I realized early on that people rarely remember what you say. And I wish I could remember the the entire beautiful Maya Angelou quote. But it was something in effect of people will not remember what you say. They won't remember something, something. But they will always remember how you made them feel. And I discovered that early on when I started teaching a lot. That that's really what it was. It was presence. It was enthusiasm. It was the passion in which you delivered it. And so then I finally broke away from that, um, gained a little more confidence in order to do that. And um, and so that's where I'm at now. So if it's a topic that I'm not familiar with, I won't teach on it. I won't speak on it. I'm pretty clear. Um, I guess the tagline that I use or my brand, if you will, is bringing love to life. So it's really all about loving ourselves, one another, and the earth. And I could teach on that or speak on that for an hour right now if I had to. But if it was other topics that I don't know much about, no way. There's no way I could even approach it. So I'm um, I'm a pretty good... Um, I'm good in a couple of key areas, and that's about it. And so I've been smart enough to really hone in on those. Yeah. Wonderful. Yeah, I'm reminded too of when I've been taught uh, as a professional, traditional storyteller, mm-hmm. all of my instructors and wise um, people who taught me said, don't, don't, don't memorize. Maybe have one or two lines memorized, but otherwise you just go from your gut, you know the story, you imagine the story, and it helps it have that breath of fresh air. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, and that's partly why I got out of acting. I was starting to do a little bit of that again through an agency called Helen Wells and did a lot of commercials and things like that. But I realized why keep playing a part of someone else? Be you. Be who you are and be true to that. And so I pulled away from that. And um, and so that's where I'm at now. It's, I think it's really all about being authentic and, um, and just being passionate about what you want to teach, which is why I'm also intrigued myself about hearing other people's stories. Uh, and the more eccentric, the better. 
because those are the juicy ones. And I just love that because everyone has a story to tell. Everyone has a song to sing. Every, you know, we've heard those kind of things before, but I so believe that. And so I also, as much as I make a career using my voice, I really, really enjoy just keeping my mouth shut and just listening and being present with someone else and letting them share from their heart what their story is as well. So that's beautiful when that happens. What advice would you give to your younger self? My younger self? Well, you know, the thing I remind myself more and more these days is always remember to play. Be playful in everything. Life is too freaking short not to. And my younger self loved to play. That's when I became a lover of nature because we had 20 acres of woods behind my house. And I was always in the woods, either building a tree fort or hanging out at the pond or playing army. I don't know what, you know, what I remember doing back then, but I remember falling in love with the earth and falling in love with nature and falling in love with animals because I grew up with that. And so there was always that playfulness in me. I was able to bring that out in my acting and theater and things like that. And, and then when I got involved in activism, I realized I lost my joy. One day I literally woke up and said, oh my God, my joy's gone. Everything's so heavy. Everything's so dark. And I thought, and I reminded myself, there needs to be more of a balance of that. And then uh, during the Kali Chakra many years ago, I had the good fortune of meeting His Holiness the Dalai Lama at a special prayer service in a small Catholic church in Bloomington. And I read about him, knew about him, but when I was able to look into his eyes, I saw also a little boy inside him. And every time when you watch His Holiness speak in large venues and he spots a child, he often will stop what he's even saying and just look at that child and make a goofy smile or little hand wave. And I love that about him and all the great ones and all the great sages that walk the earth. I think they model that. They don't take themselves seriously at all. So I learned and am learning that balance of work, of what's going on in the earth, being serious about it, but also not being serious at all about it just walking that fine line and always remembering to keep dancing. Dancing is my best mode of therapy. I dance every day, seat dance in my car, dance in my kitchen, always have music on and, uh, and don't take myself too seriously. And I find that very helpful. So that's what I would, that's reminding that little Ricky inside that three or four year old that used to do that so well and so honestly and so frequently that uh, he's coming out more and more the older I get. And I love it. Yeah. And I'm reminded too of the near death experience story that you shared uh, when I saw you speak. Mm. Can you share that story now? Because it seems at the end of it. Yeah you played. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It was uh, June 16th, year 2000, and I was uh, working for hospice at the time. I was visiting a hospice patient down in Franklin, Indiana, had just left, got down there early. It was about 8.30 in the morning, 9 in the morning. I still remember that. And there was a nice summer rain. It wasn't like a torrential downpour, just a nice summer rain. So my car uh, is driving me on I-65, heading north, coming back to Indianapolis, and somewhere between Franklin and the Whiteland exit, all of a sudden, I started hydroplaning. 
And I'd never experienced that before. And your first instinct, my first instinct, was to grab the steering wheel even tighter and try to gain control. And I wasn't gaining control at all. And it looked like the car was going to go in the median area between I-65 North, I-65 South. And it was almost like it hit an invisible wall. And it bounced back right in the middle of the two lanes, again, going 65 miles an hour. And I started to do three 360-degree circles. Each time my car faced south, I saw the semi-truck and three cars getting closer and closer. The third time, all of this happened in seconds, the third time my car faced south, I remember saying to myself, either audibly or in my thoughts, this is it. I took my hands off the steering wheel. I remember that feeling of what it was like of letting go. And I said, this is it. And I closed my eyes. And I thought, well, I don't know what happens. Maybe I'd see a white light in a tunnel. The next thing, next thing I know, my car is off on the side of the road, facing north, engine off, and I'm hyperventilating. And I hear the rain tap, hit, pounding on the metal roof of the car. And in that time, milliseconds of time, I hear the truck whooshing by. There's no way he was going to stop. I hear screechings of brakes. I look in my rearview mirror. Two of the three cars stopped. They're all behind me. Windshield wipers. Nobody's moving. After about three minutes, I roll the window down, kind of do a little faint wave like I'm okay. I'm really not. And I drive 25 miles an hour <laughs> off the highway to the Greenwood exit and go straight to where I was living at the time. When I got home, I broke down and wept. I mean, it was so stressful. And then, just as quickly, I got angry. I got angry with my source at the time. I called God because I felt like you brought me that close. I took my hands off the damn steering wheel and said, this is it. And you didn't take me. You mean I'm going to have to go through this again someday? That's kind of where I was. None of it made sense. And then I calmed down. And then I said, all right, you work hospice. You teach people about this I'm to learn something because I'm still here. So all of a sudden, the first thing that came to me was, again, when I was a little boy, I used to love to walk in the summer rain. Well, it was still raining outside. So I said, I'm going to walk in the rain. And I got up clothes on, walked right out there for about 45 minutes in the rain, felt every drop of water on my skin. And it was so exhilarating. I came back. I was kind of a little cold. So I took a hot, long shower, kept thinking about what happened today. And oh my God, I should have died. And I didn't. Came back out, buck naked, and all of a sudden I remembered a CD. I just moved into this place, and a friend of mine got me as a housewarming gift uh, uh, the best of Donna Summer CD because I love R&B and I love Donna Summer. So I put on Donna Summer and started dancing naked in my living room. Only this time, a celebration of life dance, right? And it was so wonderful. And then I said, wow, what next, what next? And then I said, oh, I feel like I need to have some kind of a communion. And on the counter, I saw wrapped up uh, part of a delicious like gourmet chocolate chip cookie. And I had a bottle of wine out on the counter. So I took the cookie and I poured a glass of Merlot wine. I sat down and had my little communion of wine and cookie. And that was great. And then all of a sudden, there was a book. Um, on the bookshelf that I had that was like almost illuminated. It was one of my first really weird spiritual experiences. So I grabbed the book 
And it was uh, Wayne Muller's book, How Then Shall I Live? Four Questions to Reveal Beauty and Meaning in Your Lives. Four chapters in a book based on four questions. And when I started thumbing through the book, I turned to a page, I don't have it with me right now, but it was the page out of the chapter, How Then Shall We Live Knowing We Will Die? And it was really all about, why are we here? What's really most important? When you know you're going to die, all of a sudden you realize every moment is precious, every breath a gift. And it went on and on and on for just one page, and I wept again. And that was when I started turning my life around and starting actually to make death my constant companion in a playful way. And the Buddhists teach us death awareness because when you do that, you realize all I have is today. I could die today, and it helps me show up big every day, take advantage of every moment I have with every person I meet, even someone who might wait on me at a restaurant or in a store, because this encounter is happening now, maybe for a reason. Maybe the reason is I'm just to smile at them or to make a compliment to them, or the time that we have right now here in your studio recording this. This is a very special moment for me. And so it's helped me live life more fully and to love more deeply. And so that was a very profound experience for me. You had said you aren't a visual artist, but you create in other ways. And I would argue that you are an artist, but just with words, right? Can you expound on that idea? Well, and thank you for sharing that. And that's probably where I am, an artist, a wordsmith. I love to play with words. I work with words. Um, I guess in some ways, I might take back visual artist only in the sense that when I've worked on some TV projects, some of them at WFYI, um, as a producer, um, there's certain scenes, certain shots that you know will work, certain others it won't. Or when we edited the entire footage we did for Serendipity Festival, which was a three-day yoga and music festival, I spent three days in the editing bay at FYI all day long for three days with the editor. He was a techie guy, I wasn't. But I had an eye and an ear for what we wanted to create and how to string those together. Um, but I do love using words. I love coming up with the right questions when I interview people, when I talk to very interesting people. Um, but I like to say now, I came across a quote from a Buddhist teacher, Roshi Suzuki, and he said, I'm an artist at living, and my work of art is my life. And so I decided, I don't know how long I have. There are no guarantees. Everything is impermanent. But every day I have, I want to make sure I'm an artist at living. And my work of art is my life. So Richard, today, by your actions, by your thoughts, by your words, by your kindness, what masterpiece are you creating? And how do you want to be received? And so... In that regard, I believe we're all artists. We all have that spark of creativity in every one of us. Uh, in creation spirituality, which is as old as beginning of time, uh, it teaches that everyone's an artist for that same reason, that we all have a little bent of creativity. Some are much more like yourself, much more professional at it, but everyone, I think, wants to be creative in a, in a certain way. So for me, it's probably uh, the weaving of words being a wordsmith.
Thank you so much, Richard, for taking the time to talk to me today. Eddie, it was my joy. Thank you so much for inviting me. And now for today's story. This is a folktale, an Indiana ghost story. It's part of the folkloric tradition of St. Mary of the Woods College near Terre Haute, Indiana. The Ghost Nun Once upon a time, a group of Catholics settled in the frontier of Indiana and built a school. With time, many young people came there to learn. One teacher in the school was a nun who loved to paint. She painted pictures of the farmland around the school and the flowers in the garden. Everyone thought her paintings were beautiful. She was asked by the head of the school to teach art classes. So the nun set up a classroom as an art studio and started teaching art. Soon the nun was asked to paint portraits of the other teachers in the school. One by one, the nun painted the pictures and hung them on the wall in the great hall. Again, everyone praised her for her talent as an artist. Finally, the nun had painted every teacher in the school except herself. Alone in the studio, she began her self-portrait by propping a mirror in front of her canvas. First, she drew the outline of her form. Then she started painting the background of the room and the black and white cloth of her nun's robes. The sun was setting outside, changing the light in the room to an orange glow. She had finished all of the painting except for her face. The nun cleaned her brushes and left the studio to eat dinner. In the dining hall, the nun was asked by another teacher what she had worked on that day. She whispered, I have almost finished my self-portrait and I think it will be my best painting yet. Oh, well, that's wonderful, said the other teacher. Our set of portraits for the great hall will be complete. The next day, however, when the morning light hit the nun's face, she did not wake up. She was sick with a fever. She could not eat or drink. After several days of pain, the nun died. When the funeral was over, her fellow teachers went to clean out the art studio. There was no one else who could teach art. When they opened the door, they found a nun sitting in front of an unfinished portrait, crying. They walked toward the crying nun to comfort her, but when she turned toward them, they were horrified to see that where the face should have been was but a black hole. This ghost had no face, just like the painting behind it. The teachers ran from the room, locking the door behind them. No one was brave enough to enter the room again. After a few years, the building was torn down and replaced with another. But it is said that the ghost nun still haunts the grounds of the school, crying over the unfinished painting. So my thoughts on this story. I think that all of us have a life's work or a calling and deep down we know that we want to complete it. 
Sometimes it's hard to articulate what it is. I have a lot of students who come to me to take art classes and they're in retirement. And they've been thinking for years that they wanted to paint something. And there's something they want to say with their painting, but they're not sure what it is. It can take some time to articulate what it is we're trying to say. But the, this story of the ghost nun, I think it reminds us that the biggest tragedy is not necessarily to die. This death comes to all of us, but it is to die without finishing our life's work and without saying what it is that we want to say and are yearning to say. If this is the case for you, I urge you to pick up a paintbrush, a pencil, get in front of a speaker's podium, whatever instrument is your voice of choice, let's say, and say what it is that you'd like. You'll feel better for it. This story, The Ghost Nun, and many others are available in my book, The Alchemy of Art, Stories for the Classroom. If you love this podcast and want to see it continue, support us by going to my website, azirfineart.com, and make a donation on the podcast page. Thanks, everyone. May these stories about art and the creative process inspire you. May you find your voice. You have been listening to the Alchemy of Art podcast. To find out more about Addie Hirshton and her work, go to azirfineart.com. That's A-Z-H-I-R-F-I-N-E-A-R-T dot com.